0: Welcome to the Proclaim Podcast, where we sit down with missionary disciples and talk all things around sharing Jesus with others. Our hosts are Brett Powell, Heather Kim, Jason Jensen, Eric Chow, and Amber Zolt.
1: Well, hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I am just so excited. We are so excited about today and our special guests. We have Father John Ricardo, Mary Guilfoyle from Acts 29, whom we're just meeting, but we've had some conversations with and been tracking each other's Work them in Michigan and us here in Vancouver and uh, we're hopefully going to extend this over a few different podcasts and jump into different topics and uh, we're just so excited for you to be here father and Mary so welcome
0: well thank you we're thrilled to be here as well it's been a long time in coming this yeah. encounter
1: likewise guys great to be with you, brothers so uh, we just really want to hear your stories we want we know that behind everything that you're doing in terms of your apostolate. There is a converted heart. There is a story of testimony of God's grace in your own life. So, Father, why don't you start us off and just share your story with uh, with our listeners?
2: Yeah, sure. Be honored. Um, so, I'm uh, a priest for the Archdiocese of Detroit. I'm 54. Uh, been ordained 23 years. Grew up in a, a home. I'm the youngest of five kids. Uh, My family's important in my story very much so my dad was my hero my mom and dad are both gone now they were married for 66 years um my dad was catholic my mom was methodist until john paul was elected and uh, she was watching with my dad and myself i think everybody else in the family was married at that time uh an event where john paul was speaking to a bunch of youth on his first visit the United States. And in the middle of that conversation or that event, my mom turned to my dad and said, I have no more objections to the Catholic church and Catholic. So for 28 years with their marriage, first 28 years, she was Methodist. Uh, My dad was Catholic. And then I have three older sisters uh, and an older brother. My brother's passed away. Um, But my family formed me uh, very much so when I was a a young child growing up, especially my dad. Um, So my dad is uh, the greatest man I've ever known. Um, He was the CEO of a Fortune 100 company, um, but he was a man who was marked by his faith in God. So he was a son of two immigrants from Italy, who uh, kind of a poor family growing up in upstate New York, and um, fought in World War II. Because of his fighting in the war, he was able to get into the University of Michigan, which otherwise he never would have been able to go to uh, because of the GI Bill. Uh, That led him to his career, Um, but he was a man who, I think from his youth, was shaped by his own uh, mom, especially, who had great faith. And then uh, that's just my memory of my father growing up, was he was a man who was very successful. I mean, his salary used to get published, you know, like every year in the paper for everybody to see, who was a good athlete, um, a man's man, but who did three things every day. Um, He read scripture, he went to Mass and he knelt at the foot of his bed before he went to bed in such a way that we could see him. So I don't know if he did that so that we would see him or not, but I think he did that so that we would see him, you know? So without calling attention to himself, he was was setting a model, whether he knew it or not, of this is what a man is. And so for me as a young boy, I'm the youngest, and I have my dad's name, one of his gifts, but I have his name, Um, just watching him Formed me from, like, as early as I can remember, that's what a man does. A man loves God, he prays, uh, and, he, and he asks God to somehow exploit his gifts. So that was the background that I grew up in, uh, very much so as a, as a boy. Um, I had some really painful things happen to me when I was a child, um, not by my family, but in my house where I was growing up, uh, which have, have also kind of... Um, shaped my life. It was, a, it was a way in which God just kind of broke into my life as a youth. And uh, maybe because of those experiences that happened in my life, um, I don't have a lot of early memories. My earliest memory is the memory of a crucifix in the church where I grew up. And somehow looking at Jesus on the cross and just knowing, like, that happened for me? And somehow my life has to be a response to that. Like if if, if I'm gonna live my life with any kind of integrity, like that's how I need to, res- that's what I need to respond to. So I knew that. I wouldn't have said it that way as a six year old, but I knew that. Um, and I so I I just grew up as a boy who prayed all the time. Um, I, I can't honestly remember a time in my life where I haven't prayed. So we talk about charisms all the time. I know you guys talk about charisms. I think God gave me the charism of faith. Um, from my youth, and, uh, which is indicting because there was a, a pretty significant block of time in my life when, despite that charism, I didn't walk with Jesus, and I was very conscious of not walking with him and walking away from him, actually. But, so, uh, prayed all the time, loved the Lord. Um, another real significant marker in my own life was just, uh, I had a mom who was not supposed to uh, give birth to me. She was told to abort me, Uh, She had a very serious injury before I was born. Doctors told her she would not survive. She obviously chose to have me. Um, But so my youth until maybe 10 years old or so was my mom in a hospital bed in our living room uh, every day and every night with braces. Um, Couldn't walk well without pain, couldn't sit without pain. Uh, was constantly in pain she had flown to uh, a set of different hospitals for special surgery on her back and i used to pray as a a young boy like my earliest prayer i think was god just give me a normal mom my father used to talk about how he had fallen in love with my mom uh in college watching at a grand slam and my mom with a baseball bat was inconceivable for me until when i'm about 10 my older sisters are now uh, in college and one of them had called my mom. She was at a, a prayer meeting of some kind. Said, Mom, I'm at a prayer meeting right now. There's someone there with a, with a, a word that God wants to heal somebody with, uh, with a dramatically bad back. I think it's you. And my mom, you know, listens to this, said something to the effect of, honey, I wish I had your faith and not let the phone. And then said to herself, um, what have I got to lose? So she just started to thank God for healing her. And, um, I mean, I don't have to tell you this. In in one month, my mom was playing tennis. So it was like, uh, I mean, I I felt like my youth was like a page right out of the Gospels. I mean, like I was the child of the woman with the hemorrhage for all those years or or pick a, a miracle, right? And so I saw as a 10-year-old or so, my mom go from being an invalid and more or less a cripple to, like, the most active woman I've ever met in my life. I mean, so she, she went out and played tennis. We built a tennis court in her backyard. She joined the tennis club. She became the tennis champ. I'm the club champ. Then started becoming all these things. And so I'm watching this going, OK, do anything. So I saw power. From a really young age, um, which obviously was uh, inspiring as all get out. But I also learned at that age that miracles aren't enough because though I saw the power and I knew God could do anything, you know, at a certain point in my life, you know, my late teenage years, whatever, I just made a real conscious decision to walk away from the Lord or to live more like a double life, like a lot of people did, you know, in high school, college is what I did. So I still prayed, but I, um, I intentionally started just living for myself as opposed to for him and my favorite prayer was father forgive me for what i'm about to do so we would call that pre-penting right which is not a good thing to do by the way um but god was merciful and i'm still alive to tell it so blessed he and then i i met um so Erica, it sounds like you might have met some guys in college and maybe brett's one of them uh, who kind of helped mentor you i'm guessing i don't know it happened to me so i met some some men when i was in, uh in university who built on the foundation my parents had laid for me and it was the first time I think I'd encountered peers and men I really admired looked up to who who didn't just happen to love God they were deeply in love with Jesus and uh, it gave me kind of permission to just run after what I realized was the desire of my heart and kind of sell out for him so that was a transforming moment in my life and then um, Graduated university and uh, had a real profound encounter with Jesus. I had two, and then I'll I'll let Mary chat, uh, which really marked my life. So I graduated from uh, college in 87 with uh, a lot of ambitions to do something. I think my whole life, all I knew was, uh, like a lot of men, I think, I just want to do something noble with my life. I I want to do something heroic. I want to do something great. I just don't know what it is. And I knew from my dad... Um, that money wasn't the answer. Money was nice, but it, it wasn't what I wanted to live for. I wanted to live for meaning. So I get out of school, and um, I'm going through an interview process, and I had a, a, an experience where I had a vision of Jesus in my car. After I had told my father, more or less, um, hey, thanks very much for paying for my education. I really don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Are you okay if I just take some time to live with some other Christians? work in a little co-op and uh, try to pray about this. And to my dad's everlasting credit, he said, son, whatever you do, I will bless. And I didn't realize how important that was at the time. But it gave me permission to let God do whatever he wanted. So I'm driving home from that uh, encounter with my dad, and I just began to weep, actually, in the car. Because I felt like uh, it was the first time in my life I was really saying to Jesus, uh, you can have everything. And so as I'm crying uh, in the car, I see the Lord like I see you on the screen. And he's just sitting there, and this probably happened for like 0.01 seconds, but it seemed like it happened for an hour, you know? And he looks at me and, and then at a certain moment, he turned towards me and he had his hand and he stuck it into my chest And as he did that, he said, John, these are all your dreams and all your goals and all your desires and everything that you want to do with your life. And he went like this and then threw him out the window. And I went, oh, it's my life. He just threw them out the window. And then he said, "Um, I'm going to give you my dream and my goal and my desire and what I want you to do with your life. And then he was gone. Um, so you would think I went to seminary right then, which I should have, uh, I did. And I was more like Jonah. He said, go to Nineveh. I went to Tarshish wrong way. So I I spent another three years or so after that, just kind of living a checkered life, uh, praying every day, but really just trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and working in a professional career. I hated my job. was going to go back to school. Didn't know what it would do for me. One day I'm, uh, I'm at work about to go back to get a master's for something I don't want to do. And I have my Bible with me. I open up my Bible. I say, Lord, what's going on here? And I open up to Matthew 19, where Jesus says, uh, some men are made, born incapable of marriage. Some men are made incapable of marriage by others. And some men make themselves incapable of marriage. You can accept it, should accept it. And I heard that, or I read it, and I knew God was talking to me. And uh, I just about threw my Bible on the ground and looked up at the sky and just said, I don't get it, Lord, what are you going to do? I mean, I was was almost married. Uh, I thought of living single with a group of guys that evangelized me, that literally wasn't the fit. Uh, Started dating again, that wasn't satisfying to me. I said, what's left? And like, I can hear the traffic behind me on the road in Detroit. I just heard the Lord say to me, John, I'm inviting you to live single and to do it as a priest. And I went, you gotta be kidding. Like, I don't go to church. You know, I didn't go to church regularly for 10 years or so. And just said, if that's really you, uh, Lord, I need a desire for that. Because I don't want to do that. So uh, that was December of 1989. I woke up like two days later with this insatiable desire to be a priest. And uh, so here I am. So I'm a testimony to God's mercy. and And trust me, the mercy is only continued. In the last 23 years of priesthood um but uh, that's that's a synthesis of my story
1: well thank you for sharing that, that's just such a a special story it's funny because i go back i was a little lost as soon as you started talking about the example of your dad because being a father you know even though jesus said when you pray go into your room and close the door yeah it's kind of strategic as a dad to leave it open a little bit so the kids are able to see right and just the seeds of that then to be able to see the 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 miracle of your mom it's like it's proof of this relationship that your dad had and yet it still unfolds you know that wasn't the immediate conversion that wasn't you know coming back to mass or certainly wasn't receiving the call but it's just so neat to hear story because that's what god is doing he's in the story building business you know touching our lives with his grace you know so thank you so much yeah and
3: there's so much that can happen in our lives when we even just open the door Just a little bit, you know, I'm hearing how you're, you're in that moment, you open the scriptures, uh, but you knew that there was a duplicitous part in your heart where, you know, parts of your life, you weren't necessarily aligning towards God, but there were parts of you that wanted to, and in that God just broke open and, you know, revealed himself to you. And, and it's not like you you had to get yourself in order in order to hear God's calling. It was in the mess. And, and and in the place where you were at, where he, he invited you and you made a
1: response to that.
2: It continues to be that. Yeah, <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah.
2: It continues to be in the
0: mess. Yes.
3: Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Amen. Mary, let's turn our attention to your story. We'd love to hear it.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I always love listening to anyone's story, but Father John's in particular, um, because he, he has played such a special role in my life. Um, I'm a testimony of God's patience and mercy um, as well. So um, I'm a wife and I'm a mother. I've been married 38 years in May. Uh, We have a grown daughter who just got married this summer. No grandchildren yet, but we have a grand dog and a couple grandkitties. I was born and raised, uh, spent like 17 years of my um, youth in Kansas in one way or another. I was born in Kansas, Uh, moved around quite a bit growing up. Uh, so um, the core of our, it was difficult for me to put down roots. So my family was really all that I had. Um, we were we were Catholic. Um, I made all the sacraments. I went to catechism. Unfortunately, learned nothing. Um, I came from um, somewhat of an unhappy uh, uh, family. Uh, my mom and dad didn't have a really great marriage, unfortunately. That didn't mean that we didn't go to mass, It didn't mean that I didn't go to commute, you know, I didn't make my sacraments, uh, but I didn't see faith lived out there. The heroes in my life were really my, my grandparents, my maternal grandparents. Um, um, I have very early memories of them praying in their house. My grandmother had a prayer chair and by her prayer chair, she had a little end table and it was stacked with books. So it looks a lot like my prayer chair and my table today in my home. Uh, my grandfather um, was um, a farmer growing up. Uh, he was a laborer, um, and I can remember visiting them in the summers. He would come in from the heat and he would take a little white wooden chair from the living, uh, from the kitchen table and walk it down two flights of steps and put it in the middle of his finished basement. It was just slab and painted. And he made a holy hour every day. And his, his rosary was in his hand. Uh, they both sang in the choir Uh, He was a man of few words. His name was Joe, and he was truly a man after St. Joseph's heart. Uh, When my grandfather spoke, um, he had much to say, and it was wise, and I listened. My grandmother was a lot of fun. Um, She was a good ear for me when I would talk to her about um, the family that uh, my brother and my sister and I grew up in. Um, But, blessed be God, uh, a lot of healing has taken place. Um, uh, as uh, As a high schooler, I was an athlete. And um, much like Father John, um, I encountered some Christians early on in high school who um, I found so incredibly beautiful and uh, attractive. They spoke the name of Jesus unapologetically. Um, That was something new for me. I I guess you could say I was culturally Catholic. And so I started to um, attend fellowship of Christian athletes after school. And that was my first taste of a Christian culture. They weren't Catholic. And uh, that was a problem for my parents. And um, so I didn't, I didn't continue to press into that. Um, I was living in New Mexico at the time, went back to Kansas to go to college. And early on in my, um, my college years, uh, I met up again with some athletes. I was an athlete in college as well. And I had joined a sorority and through a sister uh, a sorority sister of mine. She introduced me to a, a core group of really on fire Christians. It was a mix of Catholics and evangelicals, and um, they introduced me to Jesus. And I would say that I was a pretty good kid growing up. I didn't I didn't wander too far. That didn't didn't mean I was a saint by any means. But I I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I wasn't um, I wasn't um, what's the word I'm looking for. I was a pure girl, I mean, I, um, I was chaste. Um, so I didn't wander far from the Lord, um, but I think because of the home life that I had growing up, I was looking for into me was intimacy. And I discovered the one that I was hungry for was, was Jesus Christ. And um, so I remember one evening coming back late from a night out with the girls and um, this young woman who had an eye for the one which was me, blessed be God, um, folded a, a little note card and stuck it underneath my door. So when I woke up the next morning, on a Saturday morning, I saw it. And it, when I opened it up, it was just one passage of scripture. And it was Matthew 6:33. And she wrote, Seek ye first, Mary, the kingdom of God, and all of his righteousness, and everything shall be added unto you. And I don't know if I can explain exactly what happened interiorly in my heart when she shared that with me, but it pierced me in such a profound way. Um, It changed my life in an instant. Um, I bought my first Bible. I didn't know there was a difference between Catholic scriptures and non-Catholic scriptures. And so I went out and I got a Bible and I had my name engraved on it. And I got up every morning at six o'clock and opened up my Bible and I thought I had no idea what to do. I know I'm supposed to be up early. I am spo- know I'm supposed to be reading the Word of God, but will someone please teach me how to pray? And I were for about two or three more years with uh, just some dynamic Christians who taught me the Word of God, taught me how to pray, walked with me in a way that left me hungry for um, a Catholic parish after I got married that had a real culture of discipleship, and and I struggled for years to find that as my husband and I moved around the country with his career and our family. And perhaps that's one of the reasons I have such a hunger today to see parishes, um, have a real culture of encounter and invitation and discipleship and raising up disciple makers, because that's how I was formed. Um, so that's basically, um, the story of my life. I would say, um, we talk about markers in our lives. And so married 38 years, wife, wife, mother, um, moved to Michigan here in 1990, had always been involved in parish ministry in one way or the other. Fast forward to about seven years ago, um, I had gone back to seminary uh, to continue working on my studies. And I was in my studies for about six weeks. And I got a call from my doctor um, who said that um, it looked like I um, needed to come back for some more tests. Uh, I was diagnosed with a very serious cancer. And I was sick for about 15 months. And so I, I left seminary. And I told uh, uh, one of my scripture professors that I felt like I was going to learn a lot more from the School of Suffering than I would sitting in a classroom. And I did. And um, so I took St. Francis de Sales as my patron in 2012 when that journey began. And my prayer at that time was, if I'm going to die, may I die well. Teach me how to die well. And if I'm going to suffer, which I knew I would, teach me how to suffer well. And if I'm going to live, teach me to live well. Blessed be Jesus. (laughs) Um, eight, eight years later, um, I pray I'm living well and, um, I owe him my life. Um, he healed me. And so at that point it was, let's put as much gas in a gas tank and let's get to work for the kingdom of God. And that's when I really started to step back into ministry at our lady of council alongside father John. And, um, I, I don't want to stop running because I owe him my life and um that's why I'm here today and what that's why I think being a part of this mission which is we think just like what y'all are doing in the archdiocese of Vancouver this is epic and um God wants revival and uh if I can play some some small role in that I want to make good on all that he's done for me in my life
1: amen oh Mary thank you so much for sharing. It's. Uh... Yeah, yeah, and I just absolutely hold it with such reverence. I don't know why I'm reminded of, but I'm reminded of this experience I had recently, maybe two years ago. One of my kids had gone on a retreat, and I knew the community that he was going with, and it was very evangelistic, wonderful, so excited for him to go, and some of the friends that were going with him and everything. And then the parents are actually invited to attend the last session, and at the last session, the kids actually get up and have an opportunity to testify to what God has done on the weekend. And uh, I'm getting a little emotional. Sorry, we'll have to cut this out. But uh, my son got up and I knew that he desired to share what had happened, but he, he couldn't. He was just, he could not articulate it. And then the way they structured is that parents then could get up and kind of say some blessing. And I just said, you know, son, I want you to know that for somebody who hasn't had that experience, no amount of words will really understand. But for somebody who has, words aren't necessary, and I totally understand. And I don't live your story, but I just am so grateful to hear it, and to see what God has done, and I celebrate it. And uh, I just, yeah, honor you for sharing that. And I'm sure it's gonna be a blessing for everybody who.
3: There's a commonality in in both of your stories, and actually in my story and Brett's story that that's that's resonating right now. And it's it's having someone accompany us and teach us the art, uh, how to be a disciple. And, um, I'm just reminded of, I think it's in Pope Francis, Evangelii Gaudium, where he just, he speaks and invites all of us, clergy, lay people, everyone into the art of accompaniment. And, uh, and I think he makes reference to, um, you know, when you, when you have the privilege of walking with someone's, in some, into someone's life and in their heart, that, uh, that we, we would take our shoes off uh, because it's holy ground, and, uh, and we can be so grateful for those who who took the time to listen to the Holy Spirit, to walk with us, to invite us, to to reverence our hearts, and and what I hear too is that we've been the recipient of that great love, um, first with Jesus, and then with others, and now we are owning the responsibility to do that with others as well. Yeah.
0: Exactly right,
1: and Father John, you mentioned this like these are the these are the initial days of our journey, but this doesn't end, and one of the things that we're really trying to encourage with proclaiming and, and all that is that you know it's not like God converts us and then he uses us to proclaim the gospel, He never wants us to leave that intimacy that experience of him in a, in a personal way, and one of the quotes that I was thinking about as we were preparing for this was. When John Paul II talked about how if we as apostles and missionaries do not have a prayer life that fills us, you know, to overflowing, we become not only mediocre Christians, but Christians at risk. Yep. Right? Amen. Yeah. So just, I mean, speak to that, how important that is for you guys and for, you know, anybody who's really taking up this apostolic initiative to, to just stay with the Lord. He's called you to discipleship first. You know, what, what does that mean to you?
2: Yeah, so one of the things it means. Uh, I love that line from John Paul too. I think of it often. Um, so I'd say two things that come quickly to mind. One is I, I'm blessed to like genuinely. I, I can't think of a day I haven't prayed. I just can't fathom living without talking to God. The temptation for me, or for a person like me, is to let it become rote. And uh, and especially as a priest, right? So like we're we're constantly saying to guys. A lot of our our work the heart of our work in our ministry really is reviving priests like we feel like that's what god wants us to do and you know like that starts with me <laughs> like i'm the, um i'm not there as the guru i'm there as someone being able to speak to them as a, a brother who's constantly of revival myself but um there's a danger for people who do full-time ministry ordained lay doesn't matter of becoming professionally religious, like as I get older, I have more and more empathy for the Pharisees. You know, like this is to to put it crassly, this is what I do, and you know, I could do this out of my back pocket. Um, not that it would be fruitful, but I could do this. She could do this. You guys can do this. So the challenge is not to ever let it become rote, like. Don't get, Fulton Sheen used to say to priests, don't get used to handling the body and blood of Christ. You know, for us, don't get used to handling the word of God. Don't get used to coming into the presence of God. Um, and I think for me, one of the ways to do that is I, I continually have to go back to, in Mark's gospel, the motive for Jesus' call to the 12 is to be with him. So oftentimes I think as disciples, we think, He's called me to go do something. And that might be true, or, or it actually might not. <laughs> um, but the, the call wasn't functional. It wasn't like he broke into my life so that I would then go do something. The first reason was, for some reason, I don't know why, uh, God enjoys my company more than I enjoy his, apparently um which is really shocking right i mean he who needs nothing who who made the universe that's 46 billion light years across he likes hanging out with you and me like i bring nothing to the party and yet he enjoys my company right and so uh because as we get older hopefully we know who we are that becomes harder and harder to believe especially Especially post-conversion, you realize, hey, it wasn't a straight line from encountering Jesus to sainthood. It's actually been more like this, and sometimes going backwards and forwards, and yet he still loves my company. Um, I think I do a lot of priest retreats, and um, one of the lines that I often think of myself and pray with and encourage other guys to, it's on the Feast of St. Andrew, one of the antiphons in in the Liturgy of the Hours is, The Lord loved Andrew and cherished his friendship. And so just to take Andrew, I'll put my name in, you know, the Lord loves Brett and cherishes his friendship. The Lord loves, loves Eric and cherishes his friendship. Like, I just have to be reminded of that and, um, and ask God to continually keep that alive for me that make sense
1: oh yeah amen the scripture you referenced is something I thought about too and I I forget the exact wording but it's that he called them unto himself Mm
2: -hmm.
1: then that they might go preach but it's that first call to just be with the Lord right so
2: those whom he desired like so, so mother Teresa all the time you know explaining the words that she had in every one of her chapels you know to say I thirst is not to say um, I love you. It's so much more than that. It's I want you. That's what it means to say I thirst. And so, that that's God towards us. I think Benedict in his uh, in his letter on uh, on love talks about that in the sense of like don't don't mistakenly think that there are four words for love in Greek that God's only the last one. He's all of them. Like God has somehow, for some reason, attractions, even though he doesn't need us, he's attracted to us. And uh, I just find that really difficult to believe, at least
1: about me. <laughs> Amen. Mary, any thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, just, um, Father John was talking about, you know, the friendship that the Father wants to have with us. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book, In Sinu Jesu, um, was that written by an Irish, an, uh, Irish an American
2: monk? Benedictine monk? An
0: American Benedictine monk. It's just a, it's just a, a phenomenal collection of thoughts as uh, inspirations that was that was given to this monk uh, before the Blessed Sacrament. It's a great read. It's a great read for everybody, uh, most especially priests, I think. Um, but he had this great line in it. He says, um, "Time is the currency of friendship. Time is all we have. The time is a gift, right?" And um, if we want to have anything to offer those that we're discipling, I have nothing to give them. Um, I mean, there's nothing special about Mary, but to the degree that I'm being faithful to investing in the word of God and quiet time and a holy hour or, and all that that entails and all the rigor that that entails to stay faithful to, to that, I have nothing to offer anyone. I will have something to offer them if I have intimacy with God. And so, if we're really serious about being on mission, nothing's going to happen unless we pray. I mean, we all know it's the lifeblood of everything that we do in the Christian life. And so, um, and that's, and, and as he gathered his apostles with him, they asked him, teach us. Like, can you imagine watching Jesus pray? I, how attractive that must have been. And, and that's, he didn't ask. But they didn't ask him, show us how to walk on the water, although that would have been really cool. He said, teach us teach us to do what you're doing, because what you're doing there is so attractive, and I think that's something I need to know, and so it is with us. If I can
2: jump in there real quick, just something she said. You know, So we all know this is the lifeblood of mission, and yet one of the things that we're profoundly aware of and increasingly so in our work right now around the country, in the United States, um, there's a real crisis of having a culture of prayer in church life. Because what we do is we just do this real formal, hey, let, why don't we just, let's start with a prayer. And it's usually a rote Ooh. prayer, not that there's anything wrong with those, but it's, it's a rote prayer to get onto the work. And versus, mm-hmm. you know what, why don't we just push the work aside? And why don't we just, be intentional about asking God, Lord, what's the work you want us to do? And then we spend a lot of, we save a lot of time, we save a lot of money and a lot of frustration too, but we find one of the most challenging things, um, despite the fact everybody knows in ministry, we're talking about here, we need to pray, we need to be praying together, um, but we don't really pray together and we really don't pray in a way that's letting the Lord move it's just become an agenda item. And again, as we say, you know, like the Lord keeps reminding us, you know, you can see it behind us. That's one of our core values here. Like just an absolute primacy of prayer for our ministry and a willingness to let the Lord lead us. And if he doesn't build the house, uh, what's the point?
3: So yeah, that, there's this- a dramatic shift there.
2: We don't do this in the church very well all the time.
0: And it's, it is is oftentimes we were just with some catech- catechetical leaders back in January, just some lay leaders in the church. And then even with priests, and we'll hear priests say, Father, I don't pray. Or "or I'm so busy in ministry. That's, that's, that's the first thing that got etched out of my life that got squeezed out. So we just have to go back to the beginning, mm-hmm. right? And everything starts there, right? It's so easy to have that happen. And I think Mother Teresa would say, if if you think you've got a full day ahead, if you think you've got a busy day ahead, don't make one holy hour, make two, right?
1: Yeah. You know, just as you're talking about this and Father John, knowing that you've got some history with, um, you know, priests retreat and all this, when I, when I think about what John Paul II said, you know, if this prayer doesn't animate everything within us, we become not only mediocre, but Christians at risk. There's a part of my heart that is gazing at our beloved priests, because... Man, talk about people who are on so many levels already at risk, under-resourced, way too much responsibility, way too little money or too you know little resources of all kinds, just the schedule, the this, the that. It's just they could get pegged off so easy. You know? And it, even if it's not some of the scandals that we're getting all too familiar with in the church, but even if it's just this quiet creeping in of despair, because if despair enters the heart of a pastor, a leader, then you stop hoping. And if you don't hope, where is vision going to come from? If you Amen. don't believe that, you know, we're called to go from from where we are to where we can be, hope's got to animate that. Like,
0: oh, gosh, that opens up. A yeah, you know. and if, if I can,
2: I'd like to just speak real quickly into that just because, uh, so there's a, you know, the enemy goes after us all in, in unique ways, but also, you know, if you will, by categories, right? And so... He he tries to go after priests in a particular way by um, through a discouragement over your own failures. So one of the things that we have found over and over, we've been blessed to bring like 550 guys, priests on retreat in the last six months or so. And one of the most powerful moments that we have for the guys is we just walk them through kind of an extended reflection on John 21, which is the encounter between Jesus and Peter after the resurrection and it's the first encounter where they speak to each other after the denial and the reason we do that is uh, so we, we do this long reflection for the guys all day long in the gospel and then lead them in a response you know a new surrender of their priesthood to, to, to jesus and this could be for lay people too but um what we then pose to the guys is okay but undoubtedly there's more than a few of us here right now who are thinking to ourselves that's nice but you don't know me and you don't know my struggles since I've been ordained. And, and they're not criminal things. They're just the struggles of life, right? It's like we go to confession and we're still battling, you know, our weaknesses and whatever. And so we, we want to we look at and we say to the guys, so we need to see how does Jesus handle the fall of one of his chosen ministers? Because it's not the way the church often does. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus restores Peter. And we just tried to remind the guys, hey, just like with Peter, Jesus saw Peter's denials when he called him. And he still called him. And that, in fact, made him to be a better shepherd and a better dispenser of mercy. And so whatever you're struggling with, the Lord saw that, and he still called you. So don't let the enemy somehow say, you're disqualified or this is not for you i mean this is true for anybody who's listening right now because priest way it doesn't matter we've all we all got battles and the enemy's like if they knew you they would run and the Lord's like no i do know you and i called you and you're not disqualified and you're not dismissed and in fact i will use your weakness to make you better with those that i am calling you to minister to That's so important
1: to know. And it's interesting because one of the things, I mean, I can say, I absolutely struggle with that. And it's consistent. There's this, you know, you feel disqualified because of this, that, the other things, a hundred different reasons, right? But it's so important to remember your conversion, that moment when God rescued you and you, you you knew your sin, your failings, your shortcomings, your weaknesses. That's what made it amazing news. Like that's what makes it grace right? That, that Jesus has this relationship with the father that he has by nature. And he went to the cross and by what he did, he earned by grace, the exact same relationship. And to always come back to that is just so important because otherwise, man, then you can, I'm disqualified, but I'm going to have to earn my way out of this. And it's like, that's not going to end well.
3: Yeah. That relationship has to be at the forefront because you might, you might go into and approach Jesus at some point and expect to be on trial and expect to have to justify or to speak to whatever and and then have to answer to questions like why did you do that or how how could you have made such a mistake or whatever it might be and yet when we approach him he asks the simple question do you love me right. and and it's beautiful and it's it's redeeming and it's it's calm and it's patient and it's and it's kind and he's he says i have the power you know to to redeem you and to to bring you into relationship but if we if we don't see jesus as lord and savior and we see god and we see him as as a judge or as someone who's about to interrogate us then yeah you know i wouldn't want to open the door there right and i'm going to stay within myself and and not expose or you know or, or let anyone else know of these shortcomings because i don't want to get interrogated
0: you know, I, I would just want to add just one thing here too. Um, we're all at risk, as Christians, we're all at risk, right? If we if we don't pray and, and and we and we let the enemy get our ears, and um and speak lies about our identity and is our destiny. But I think there's something especially beautiful to see the priests that we've been able to bring on retreat, and to watch them be transformed in the course of maybe 12 hours where they've heard the gospel proclaimed preached in power and and to have them walk through this meditation to have them kneel before the Blessed Sacrament and to come to us as lay leaders so the 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 three that you're not seeing here is another lay another lay woman a layman and a deacon and to offer them prayer ministry and to watch them open up their hearts and to be vulnerable and to, and to speak what it is they're hearing from the enemy and to pray God's healing over them and to see them get caught again. And then the next day, because we do a three-day conference, to sit with our brothers and to hear them give testimony what God did. And it's like they just, their shoulders are back and they're just... Just just, God is recreating them before our very eyes. He's restoring them, and and we need. There will not be parish renewal without priestly revival, or church, or church renewal. Like it's just not going to happen. To see these guys get caught in the gaze of Jesus, and to recognize that we hear it all the time. There's no saint without a pastor, no sinner. Uh, without a future, right? That's that's just not a cute line. That's reality for all of us. Mm-hmm. When did you last get rescued? Uh, this morning. Yeah, right. Right. Just or, or now. Just now, now like mm-hmm. about two hours ago, across the hall. But when did you last give your life to Jesus Christ? Uh, this morning. Mm-hmm. When did you begin again? Might have been five minutes ago. But th- this is where this is what's. This is just so central to what we do here in Acts twenty nine is just to focus on the heart of the pastor. And I
2: think oftentimes is, you know, the frustration of a Christian is, uh, or the temptation to frustration is, yeah, but you know, I'm, I'm more mature now, I'm low. And like, I feel like God continually remind me, what, why do you say that? Like, you're a child. You've always been a child. You will forever be a child. You are utterly dependent on me. What made you think there was gonna come a time when you and I were gonna be peers? <laughs> but, like,
1: yeah exactly
2: <laughs> like who do i think i am i am dust and ashes and he's god so he he's all right with me um he can handle acknowledging everything. like i need you you know like yeah. papa i need you where are you
1: spiritual maturity unlike any other form of maturity is is actually a growth in understanding our dependence not yeah. independence right sure. I, I want to share, and then we'll, we'll get on to st- hearing about the parish and, and Acts 29, but for edifying and, and just another layer of this, I, I had a, and this may not make another the podcast, but I want to share it with you. I had a call a number of months ago and um, got on the phone. And it was a, a leader in the church, I'll just say, and said, uh, Brett, I talked to three, three bishops, and they each said to, to call you. And for about three seconds, I had you know, pride frankly. And then that quickly dissipated because I thought, oh my, like, what are we going to be talking about? So I just quickly, you know, spirit came and like, okay, this reverence, this is an absolute privilege. Oh my gosh. And he just went on to describe situation that any other leader could describe. And I'm just thinking, what do, what do I say? What do I have in this moment? And all I said was, let's not talk strategy. What I really want to know is what is the father saying to you in this?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and as my my question came out and my intention was good with that question i could sense immediately the presence of shame Mm -hmm. and that my question was being used by the enemy to shame him like you're talking to this lay guy and here you are you should know this better you know and um and also a spirit of orphan and i was my heart was breaking even as i was just having this conversation because it was like how many men as leaders in the church experience this kind of orphan thing they have the full weight of responsibility and there's no sense of solidarity with you know anybody or very few and i just thought this is just a major gap between what it is and what it should be there should be surrounding of prayer and solidarity and fellowship and all these things just like you're describing with the retreats And how you come along and and then they just well up and that's not pride it's like I'm in a family I have the security of being in a family and there's fellowship here so that's another beautiful part of your ministry that I just absolutely affirm how important it is
0: thanks for listening if you like this episode be sure to subscribe share with a friend or leave a review we'd love to hear what you think